if how many of you brought your Bibles or your Bible app or something like that? All right, well, hold on to it, and we're going to talk. We're going to open to the Book of Hebrews in just a minute. Like I said a few moments ago, every on the first Sunday of every month we celebrate communion, and we just did that. We we celebrate communion. We gather around the table of the Lord, and uh, when we do that, we recognize what Christ has done for us. We we receive afresh into our lives what he's done. Again, we're not pretending that he's, it's brand new or it's happening afresh. We are simply recognizing that he, it's, it's a, what he has done is permanent, and we receive it together, and we give thanks. Everybody say, give thanks. And that's what we do. But the question is, how do, after that, how do we respond, or do we respond? Can we respond to the finished work of Jesus? I mean, he's done all this work. He has finished it. We cannot add to. We cannot say, thank you, Lord Jesus. We'll take it from here, right? We can't add to what he has done, but the question is, can we respond to it, or should we respond to it? And the, and the answer is, yes. Everything we are as believers, and particularly as we talk about this on our anniversary Sunday at Heritage, who we are and what we are at Heritage is because of Jesus. We live because or in response to because of Jesus. Everybody say because of Jesus. There you go, bub. There you go, my son on the good PowerPoint spinning the... Everybody say it again, because of Jesus. The, the, we live in response to him. The, the, the death and resurrection of Christ has a therefore to it. Our whole Christian life is a therefore. We have opportunity to respond. Not necessarily obligation like ayayumna, not legalism, not something that we owe per se. But we do, ha- but we do have, by, if I would say by faith, a kind of obligation. What do you mean by that, Dav? I mean that the gravity and the greatness of grace makes it almost unconscionable, illogical, even absurd not to respond. The magnitude of Christ's mercy and his redemption makes a fervent response irresistible. He has done too much for us not to respond completely. So then how should we? How can, how should we respond to what Christ has done? The New Testament is full of, 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 of statements and principles of inviting us, calling us to respond to him. Uh, the, 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 the Apostle John says, we love God. Why do we love God? We love him because there's, we love because. Everything is because of Jesus. Somebody say because of Jesus. That's why we're here. We're here. Everything we are, everything we're saying is because of Jesus. We love him because he first loved us. Do we seek him? Oh, yes, the Bible says that he promises, he promises reward for those who seek him. Jesus urges us to seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. We seek him. But, do, but was that our idea? No, we seek him because Jesus says in the gospel of Luke, he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He took it upon himself to seek us out. As a matter of fact, here's the deal. Every, if, if any of you in this room this morning have any inclination toward God, any desire toward him, any hunger, any longing, any desire to know him or to love him or to serve him, does anybody have that? This, these guys over here do. I'm, look, I'll go talk over here. They were very quiet on this side. Does anybody in the house have any inclination, any desire to know God, to love him, to love him? 
or to serve Him. None of that was your idea. It did not start with you. Every desire you have toward Him is an echo of His toward you first. Therefore, you should know in your heart of hearts, when you think, oh man, I would love to know God, but I don't know, I don't know if He's interested in, in me or not. I don't know. Listen, here's the deal. You wouldn't have any tingling, any ounce, any, any sort of desire toward Him unless He initiated it toward you. So everything that you sense, every desire, every curiosity, know that is the Lord. He is the one who initiates. He is the one who woos. He is the one who calls. He, Adam is the one who hid. God is the one who seeks us out. So we respond, of course, we respond to the gospel. Now, the book of Hebrews, our text this morning, has a particular interest in responding. And in, in, in first of all, the book of Hebrews is sets out to describe to the original audience, who very likely were Jewish Christians, who were probably struggling to understand, uh, to, to come out of some of their tradition, and some of them were struggling with the uh, with compromise and persecution and some other things. And, and so the writer of Hebrews writes to them to say, look, Jesus is absolutely the fulfillment of all hope. He is superior to Moses. He is superior to any angels. And his covenant is superior and, and every, is superior, is the, it's the fulfillment of and superior to all covenants. Jesus is everything, he says. And then there's a therefore. Jesus is, has fulfilled it all. He has done it all. The magnitude of his redemption is immeasurable. He says, look, you haven't come to Mount Sinai, some smoke-filled lightning thing where you, have to, where you have to hide behind somebody else and worry that you might not get caught. He actually used, he, the writer of Hebrews uses mystical language, and he says, you have come, you have come. He actually says uh, in the New Living, you've come to the assembly of God. <laughs> Hallelujah. Yeah. He said, you've come to the assembly of God. You've come to the mountain of God. He said, you've come to the host of heaven, to, to, to angels and saints and all these things. He says, you have come to this spiritual arena on all of it because God has brought you here in Christ. Therefore, somebody say, therefore. In other words, be, we live because of Jesus. So now we pick it up at, at Hebrews chapter 10 and verse, someone said to me after first service, they said, you really shouldn't get so excited. I said, well, I'll find something worth getting, you know, worth more excitement over then. Maybe I'm excited about some. Here we go. Verse 19. Your Bible might say I have a, 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 a description or a subtext here. Mine says a new and living way. So here's verse 19. Here is the axis in the book of Hebrews where the writer switches from describing all that Christ has done to inviting us to respond. You ready? Here we go. Verse 19. The first few verses, he, he kind of recapitulates or reminds his audience of what he has said. And then in verse 22, he launches into the therefores. But let's start at verse 19. Therefore, brethren and sistren, that's all of us. That's it, not cistern. No, that's a different. Okay. This is Adelphi. Therefore, siblings, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way, which he inaugurated for us through the veil, that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, since these things are true, let us draw near. 
with a a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another And all the more as you see the day drawing near. Okay. So he starts off the first few verses with with the since or because. And here he says, therefore, or since, the first thing is, since we have confidence. Everybody say, we have confidence. Since we have confidence. Confidence here means boldness and freedom. It is an open invitation. Confidence is presented as a fact. It's a fact. It's, it's an established fact. We have confidence to do what? To enter the holy place. Now, he says the holy place, but later on, by mentioning the veil, we understand what he means is he's talking to, uh, again, to a crowd that understands. He's, he's referring to the temple. He's referring to the sanctuary of God. That, but that, that in the past, nobody got to go in there except for the high priest only once a year and that was kind of scary it was it was very rare as a sacred it was off limits there was a there was the like they knew in there was the presence of god but nobody could go in there but now because of jesus we have confidence to go now where no one could go before yeah yeah take that william shatner to both, literally, come on, to boldly go. Where before this, nobody could go before. We have confidence to enter into this place. How? Why do we have this confidence? By the blood of Jesus. Our confidence is in his shed blood, his death on our behalf and all that it accomplished. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 7, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. It's important that we hear this well. I like, to, I like to repeat this. It's important that we hear this. We have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. Um, let me say this sentence before anybody gets mad at, at what you think you're hearing. You are not forgiven. Uh, don't get mad. I said don't get mad. You, your sins have been forgiven. To forgive means to cut off, to separate forever. Anybody want to be forgiven? Not me. No, you have been redeemed. You have been, re- you have been brought near. Your sins have been forgiven and cast away, but you have been brought near. That's what the blood of Jesus did. Why do we have confidence to come near is because I am coming near and everything that formerly kept me away is gone. My sin, my shame, my guilt, it's gone. It's canceled. It's gone forever. It's forgiven. It has literally been separated from me as far as the east is from the west. But I, I have been brought near. I've been redeemed. So I have confidence to enter. 
We have confidence to enter, the, the writer says, through a new and living way. He, he says that the, the, the old way, the veil that used to separate everybody from the holy place, that veil has been torn asunder in the, in the body of Christ. The moment Christ died, that veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom, just torn right in half. And now we have entered in through a new and living way. Not an old way, not a way of routine and death, but the way we enter is alive. Paul writes later, speaking of a similar veil, 2 Corinthians 3.16, he says, whenever a person turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. That's what, and then he actually says, we with unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord face to face. We, someone say, we have confidence. That's confidence. And he says, and since, since we have confidence, and since we have, or because we have, a great high priest. Now, they, his audience remembered the high priest back in the day. The, the job of the high priest was to, every year, to make sure that the priest made atonement for the people. And he had to get it right for them to have atonement. For that, for that big horn to blow on the day of atonement, that priest had to do his job. And not only did he have to, the priest, do the work to make atonement for the people, but the priest had to live and be faithful to make constant intercession. The livelihood, the health, the good favor, the good graces of the entire community depended upon whether or not that high priest got it right. So there's a little, you can imagine a little intrepidation, like, you know, whether old Henry's going to get it right this year. I don't know there's a lot of guys named Henry, but that keeps me from offending anybody. But we don't have to worry about Henry. We don't have to worry about a guy showing up every year to make sure that he gets the sacrifice right year after year. But no, the writer of Hebrews said, we have a great high priest who has once and for all time, by one sacrifice, made holy forever. <laughs> holy forever, those who are sanctified, those who have been brought in. You've been made holy. There is no need for another sacrifice. And not only that, but we, we're told this, that this priest lives to make intercession for us. He's got you atoned for, and he's got you covered in prayer. And if Jesus is praying for you, it's going to be okay. Woo! So we have confidence, and we have this great high priest. Therefore, how should we live? If, we've, if, if we have this confidence to come into the very presence of God, and we have a high priest who makes us and really comes with us, how then should we live? What is our response? That's where we get to verse 22. Verse 22 says this, let us, everybody say let us, let us, this is the, he's writing in the, it's, a, it's, the, it's the first person plural, it's a, it's a, he's saying therefore, let us do this together. J the author says, join me in doing this. All of us should do this. It's interesting, it's not an imperative, it's not a direct, it's a, it's, it feels like one, but it's more of a strong invitation. And it's, it's because, and it's, it's this, the whole thing is leveraged on the idea of because. If you care, it's, it's the subjunctive in the Greek. It means because this is true, this is what you should do. This is you responding to something that is true. Because of all that Christ has done, the first thing he, the author says is let us draw near. Somebody say draw near. Draw near. Say it again. 
It's the first thing that we, it's the first, it's the first thing. The writer is the first response. Considering all that we have in Jesus, all that Christ has done for us, the first thing he says is, therefore, let us come close. It's the first and greatest and most important response to Jesus we could ever do is draw near. So many folks, instead of drawing near, they hear about what Christ has done, and so many folks think, well, well, golly, I better, I, better, I better clean myself up first. I'd sure like to be a part of that. But the first thing they do is they start thinking about themselves or what they haven't done right or have done right, or they start negotiating with God. But the first and greatest response that any of us can have is because of Jesus, we draw near. Nothing happens by you keeping your distance. It does no good to you, no honor to Christ, if you stay away. If you stay away, you will stay the same. If you stay away, you'll stay the same. But if you'll draw near, you'll never be the same. Don't worry. Say, oh, no, i got to get my house in order. i got to clean the drapes. i got to vacuum the floor before Jesus comes. No, listen, he will just totally remodel when he gets there. He has a whole new idea for your whole house. Your only job is to give up and come home. Come home, come home, come home. Drawing near, nearness to God. What is he? What's my purpose in life? Why am I like? What's the purpose of life? Draw near. That's it. Nothing else happens until you do. Nothing else matters unless you do. Drawing near is the desire of God. It is the design of God. It is, what, it is what the blood of Jesus has accomplished for you. Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13 says that you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. The verb there literally means to be squeezed close. Imagine God reaching in and bringing you near. That means there's nothing that you can do. No jumping jacks, no aerobics, no earning, no points. Nothing you can do but believe that the blood of Jesus has made a way, has brought you close. How? How do we draw near? The, the writer says we do this with a sincere heart. Put away all pretense. He knows who you are. <laughs> Just stop. You, all the, those silly, the fake goggles that you wear, the little Groucho Marx goggles that you wear around pretending that you're somebody, he knows, he can see through that. All Come with a sincere heart. That's it. Just be honest with God. Be honest and with, the writer says, with a full assurance of faith. Believe deeply and certainly that what Christ has done is more than enough. And then he says this, having, as in this has already happened to us, I come with sincerity, I come with certainty. Why? Because, he said, you have been made completely clean. He uses the language of, a, of, the, of, the, of the priest's approach to the holy place back in the day. He says, your conscience has been sprinkled. Your evil conscience. That, that, that you're, you're aware, you're, you have this sin consciousness. You think about sin. You think about what a sin you have done, the possibility of it, the fact that sin has taken a, 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 a place in your consciousness, but the blood of Jesus washes all that away so that you, no longer, you can now have a, a, a righteousness conscious. You can be conscious of the righteousness of God in Christ, and you can, your whole 
everything, all, every memory that you have of sin and wrongdoing can be totally separated from your life. I come just as if I've never sinned. And not only that, but he uses the same language that the priest would wash his physical body before drawing near. He said, you have been washed. Your conscience is clean. Your body is clean. What's that mean? What that means is you have been made completely clean. Every part of you has been washed and clean by the, by the work of Christ. Therefore, every part of you should draw near. Hold nothing of yourself back. Draw near. One more time, everybody say, draw near. Nothing happens until you draw near. Nothing. It does no good to stay away. Draw near. Then the next thing is this. First of all, let us draw near. Secondly, let us, verse 23, let us hold fast. Everybody say, hold fast. Let us hold fast to our confession of hope. To hold fast means to cling to and never let loose of. Never let loose of what? The confession of hope that we have in Christ. What confession is that? Well, first of all, it is a confession. Everybody say confession. Confession is a legal term. It means to testify. It means that you have stated something is legally, actually true. Being a Christian is a, is a public commitment. It is a confession before God and the whole earth. I believe in Jesus Christ. This is my confession. It's legal evidence. God accepts it. What have you confessed? You have confessed this, my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Your confession is this, on Christ, the solid rock, I stand, and all other ground is sinking sand. Don't let loose of it, he says. Don't let loose. Hold fast to that confession of hope. Why? Why would, why, why would his original audience have begun to let loose? Why would they let go of such a confession? Well, probably then, like us, and we understand the context in history, people sometimes make a stupid trade. They'll let loose of the hope they have in Christ, and they'll want to trade it for the empty promises of this world or the distractions of this world, the weeds that choke us out. Very likely, the original audience would have been very tempted to let loose of or let go of that confession because of the tremendous amount of persecution and threat that they faced. But he says to them, hold fast. One more time, everybody say it, hold fast. He says, hold fast without wavering, without wavering. Hold fast without wavering. That means don't be wishy-washy. Don't be fearful or weak or temporary. Here's the thing. Your feelings are going to come up and go down. Has anybody ever had like weird feelings? Your faith does not rest upon your feelings. There's going to be days that you don't feel so great. You don't, you don't even have to, you, there's going to be days you don't feel so saved. But it don't matter how you feel. It doesn't. Your, what, faith does not rely on how you feel. Faith is moved by what you choose to believe and do. So you can, be, you, can feel one, you can feel absolutely horrible and still decide to cling to this hope without wavering. 
You can do this. You can cling. You are not a temporary. You are not some sort of temp. This is not something that you try on and move on to the next day. And never feel guilty because your feelings waver. Your feelings may waver, but your faith must never. You know why you can? You know why you can cling to this hope without wavering? Here's why. The author tells us. Because he who promised is faithful. Why do we hold fast? Because he who promised is faithful. Meaning, we hold fast because he holds us fast. We hold fast because he's got you. I'm not T.D. Jakes, but maybe you should tell your neighbor, tell your neighbor, he's got you. Somebody next to you needs to know that today. He's got you. They're very worried about whether they're going to make it. You just tell them, hold fast, he's got you. We do not waver because Jesus has never and will never wavered. He is trustworthy. His promises are true. He will never leave you. He will never forsake you. How do we know Jesus will keep his word? Because he did. He said, I'm, they're going to kill me. I'm going to be going in the grave for three days. I'm coming out. And he did. And if he came out the grave, he'll come back for you and me. He is faith. Every single thing he's promised, he will keep. Therefore, we hold fast. Finally, the last thing he says is this, verse 24 and 25. Let's read it again real quick. Verse 24, and let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together as, in, as is the habit of some. You can almost hear him want to mention names right there. Bartholomew. I don't, no, not Barney, Bartholomew, different, yeah. <laughs> like some people, hint, hint, he says, but rather, rather than that, he says, but encouraging, not forsaking, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let us draw near, let us hold fast, and finally, let us encourage one another. Oh, say it out loud with me, will you please? Encourage one He says, let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds. He literally is saying, give thought and care as to how to robustly motivate. Your Bible might say uh, provoke one another or, or stir one another up. The, uh, the NASB says stimulate because it's a word, it's a verb in the Greek that means to really robustly motivate each other to, toward love and good deeds. The author seems to think that it is important that you and I give thought and careful energy to encouraging each other, to, to moving and pressing one another toward love and good deeds. It's because it doesn't happen naturally. The world we live in, it's the second law of thermodynamics, dynamics, the law of entropy, the world we live in has a natural decay to it. And the world, you may not be aware of this, but there's a tremendous amount of negative gravity in your world. I don't, I mean, maybe you knew. But every, every kind of media, social and otherwise, people talking, people interaction, there is this gravity of negativity. And it's a part of living in a world that's still, that's still fall, that hasn't been fully redeemed. And there is this, there's this negative gravity that you live in. And the only tonic, 
the only solution for believers that the Bible prescribes to resist, to be opposite of all of that negativity, all of that discouragement, all of that despair, the tonic for that, the prescription that heaven has is the person next to you. For the, the Bible's plan, heaven's plan for you to overcome and to rise above the negative gravity and the cynicism and the despair and the nonsense out there is for you and I to, to give careful consideration as to how we might encourage each other. And then he says, you can only do that if you come to church. That's what he says. You can't encourage people if you're not around them. I know people say, oh, I don't, uh, I don't need to, I don't have to go to church to be a Christian. Maybe not, but you, you, but if you want to stay a Christian, you better go to church. I don't, there is anybody I've ever met anywhere, anytime. I'm 48, been in church 49 years. I don't know nobody who has become a better Christian by not going to church. Are you kidding me? I know a lot of people who are a lot better because they never left, and I am one of them. You will be better if you gather. We will be better if we gather. I'm not saying you won't get irritated. You'll have an opportunity for growth. I'm not saying you won't get your feelings hurt. You'll have an opportunity to practice forgiveness. But we will all be better if we do this together. He says, don't, he, look at that, first century, whatever, it's like 50-something A.D. And he says, uh, as is the habit of some, apparently first century people also skip church. <laughs> but I think that most of them did because of threat or harm or loss or death, not just because they weren't in the mood or because they had kind of a busy Saturday. Well, we did a lot of shopping yesterday, and we just couldn't make it. All right. I'm not trying to ouch nobody. All I'm saying is the Bible says it's better if we do this on the regular. You will be better for it. I'll pro and I won't talk this long every week. <laughs> uh, yes, I will. <laughs> Encourage one another. Say it again. And then this, la this last part, it's still because of Jesus, but he says, Encourage one another all the more, which means we all, everybody needs more in encouragement, not less. Nobody in here should feel they have the ministry of discouragement. That is, is, that is not anywhere in the Bible. <laughs> Encourage 
one another all the more. Why? As we see the day approaching. This is still because of Jesus, right? But the author has now connected because of what happened, because of what Christ has done. He's now connected also to because of what Christ will do. We will all have to stand before the Lord. Eternity is real. Jesus is coming. And we should live like it. We will all have to stand before the Lord. So because of Jesus, here's the writer of Hebrews. Because of Jesus, we respond to Jesus. Because of Jesus, we live from his triumph on the cross for his triumphant return. We literally live between between two triumphant poles. That's the Christian life. From his triumph, for his triumph. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. So, because of Jesus, let us draw near, hold fast, and encourage one another. If you have an amen, now's a good time to say it. Let's stand together and pray. says of the apostles that they went everywhere telling all men that they should repent. The book of Acts describing Paul's message, Paul tells people that now God has called called upon all men to to repent, to turn from their sin and to turn toward him. Repentance is really a response to what God has done. The kingdom of God is here. Jesus Christ is Lord. He has died. He has risen again. Therefore, If you have not repented of your sin, if you have not said, Jesus, I need to be saved from my sin, be my Savior. I turn from my sin, and I turn to you as my Lord. You can do that today. You can do it right now. You can simply, in your own words and in your own way, there there isn't a formula, there isn't a form to fill out. It is your heart. It is doing just what the writer of Hebrews says, drawing near with a sincere heart and full assurance of faith. Not your own goodness, not your own good works, not your own resume, but just total confidence, absolute confidence in what Christ has done. Just say, Lord, I come. But the truth is, all of us today, the first and greatest response to Jesus is that we draw near. So let's everybody just open your hearts like to lift your hands. Let's just, just let's just agree together. Lord, we come near. Lord, today we turn away from anything. Lord, all of us, I pray that all of us today would repent of any reason or any way that we would have stayed away. We would have stayed, that we would have kept our distance. Lord, we don't want to stay the same. We want to draw near. Lord, by faith today, we believe in the blood of Jesus has
have an amen. Just let somebody hear you say.